0: Hello and welcome to the 538 Politics Podcast. I'm Galen Druk. If you are alive in 2022, you know that America is divided. Republicans and Democrats disagree on all manner of things. Surveys suggest that they may not even like each other and voting data shows they often live separately too. But today's guests suggest that in focusing on the left-right divide in American politics, we are missing another important divide one that may actually run counter to the idea that America is hopelessly conflicted between red and blue. In the book, The Other Divide, authors Kryptokov and John Barry Ryan argue that the gulf between Americans who are deeply involved in politics and those who are not deserves more of our attention. In fact, they say the kinds of partisans who are engaged enough to actually despise the other side only make up 15 to 20% of the country. The other 80 or so percent are focused on their daily lives and in large part don't like politics or want to talk about them. And they say that it's a problem that the 15 to 20 percent minority drive our understanding of the two parties and politics. Perhaps, dear listener, you are part of that minority, so consider this your trigger warning. Yana and John are both political science professors at Stony Brook University, and they are here with me now. Welcome to the
1: show. Thank you for having us.
0: Yeah, thanks for having us. So, first things first, how did you come to the conclusion that it is only 15 to 20% of Americans who are engaged in that stereotypical partisan standoff between right and
2: left? I mean, there's not a simple answer to that question because the measure we actually use in the book is a continuum. One question that correlates really well with the involvement question that is, how much do you pay attention to politics? How much do you talk about politics? This sort of battery is a standard question you see in a lot of measures of effective polarization. Would you be upset if your child married someone from the other party? And then the question becomes that we've added is, but they'll never talk about politics, or they'll rarely talk about politics. And what you see there is a very high correlation between these two measures, and about 15 to 20% of the public say they would be upset with somebody in the uh, out party in their family, even if that person's not going to talk about politics as often. So we go through a bunch of different measures that are fairly correlated with one another. Sometimes we get 10%, sometimes we get 20%. So 15 to 20% is about the number that we usually come to. You've focused on this
0: question of how would you feel if your kid married somebody from the opposite political party? There's also questions about would you consider being in a relationship with somebody from the opposite political party? And I see in survey data that 40% or so of Americans say they would not be open to being in a relationship with somebody from the opposing party. And when you put specific candidates on the survey, like would you be in a relationship with somebody who voted for Trump or would you be in a relationship with somebody who voted for Clinton, that number can be even higher. So how do you get from that significantly larger number down to like, oh, it's only really 15 to 20% that feel this deeply?
1: Well, I think we need to think about what is happening to people when they're asked this question, right? So you have this question, would you marry somebody of the opposing party? Would you marry a Clinton voter? And that's literally the only information you've given people about this person. When that is the only thing I know about this hypothetical person, it suggests to me that if you've taken the time to tell me just this thing, that must be one of the most important facets of this person, right? That, that The fact that they are a Clinton voter, a Trump voter, a Democrat, Republican, whatever, that that is kind of Pivotal to who they are as a human being. And so, what we see in our research is that once you give people more specifics about this person, that's when you see that decline. So, they're not just a, vo- a person who votes for some party. They're not going to talk to you about this. That gets the number down.
0: Wait, but isn't that kind of priming people a little bit? Like, okay, yeah, they're a Republican or a Democrat, but like they're never going to talk about it. Then you're kind of like, okay, well, then does it matter? Are they really a Democrat or a Republican?
1: Well, so that's interesting, right? Because we have this one experiment where we essentially ask the question, I'll just call it flat, right? We just, that measure of the question, we don't tell them anything about this person. We have a version of the question that suggests that it's somebody who doesn't, isn't really going to talk about it. We have a version of this question that specifies what level ideology, kind of how ideologically extreme this person's going to be. And What happens there is that that flat measure, people are envisioning somebody who's constantly talking, somebody who is extraordinarily ideologically polarized. Okay, fine. But you might say that we've primed people to tell them that they're not a real Democrat or not a real partisan. The problem becomes is that in our other survey data, when you just ask people how often they're talking about politics, how strong ideologically they are, They actually aren't really talking about politics. They actually aren't really all that ideological. My suggestion would be is that the flat version of the question is priming people to imagine somebody who is literally a minority of the electorate.
2: I'll say one other thing that that gets back to what you were saying. We also have tested it as they vote for local Republicans or Democrats or national Republicans or Democrats. And yeah, you're much more likely to have somebody saying, I don't want somebody who votes for the national Republican Party or the national Democratic Party than, than the local one. So people do make these distinctions, right? If you imagine someone in Maryland saying, I don't care if you vote for Governor Hogan. I'm not cool if you vote for Trump. The other thing we would note that I think sort of matters here is that When political scientists talk about this affective polarization... Sorry, just to clarify, affective
0: polarization is like academic speak for you don't like the person in the opposing party.
2: Well, that's half of it. Okay. And the other half of it is, I like my party. And the thing that you'll get much more often is people saying, I don't want my kid marrying someone from, from the other party. What they rarely say, except for the most interested and most involved in politics is, I actually would be happy if my kid married someone from our party typically what they say is, I do not care. And then when they move away from do not care, it can it's split. Some people say, oh, I'm unhappy because you've just told me they're going to marry someone from my party and they're going to talk about politics a lot. And I don't want that regardless of the party. And then you'll have other people who will say, oh, you told me they're in my party, but they're not going to talk about politics that much. And I don't like that either because I was hoping, well, this would be someone who I could talk politics with. So the problem here is this... And that we're always trying to deal with in terms of interpreting survey results and interpreting public opinion is there's a lot of subtleties, a lot of gray areas. But when we just asked the as Yana put, the flat question, we're leaving it up to the respondent to interpret what question we asked, which might not be the question we thought we were asking. part
0: of the dynamic that you say this creates or that we have in this country is that people imagine out partisans. So if you're a Democrat, you imagine a Republican. If you're a Republican, you imagine a Democrat to just be, more extreme, often talking about politics, this really engaged group of people, when in fact, that's rare. And you say that in reality, 80% of the country is just not really all that into politics. Wouldn't it become clear through the normal course of people's lives? You have family members who aren't interested in politics. Maybe the person you're dating isn't interested in politics. Your friends aren't interested in politics. Why would we have this kind of exaggerated stereotype of partisans, if, in fact, 80% of the people around us don't care,
2: people get it right for their own party, right? They understand that their own party isn't that active. Their own party isn't coming to commit violence in their area. And part of that's because people uh, generally are associating with, in their family, certainly, in their friendship group, usually, in their coworkers, a little bit less so, but even so, oftentimes, with people who are in their party. Right. And so we we do have this homophily that occurs, you know, with people liking other people. We have some geographic sorting, though maybe not as much as it seems, but there is some of that. Uh, And then there's race sorting, there's cultural sorting, there's religious sorting of parties. And once you have that, right, and you're in this sort of world in which the only people whose party you know are the people who are like you, and the people who are not like you don't talk about politics. So you probably assume they're like you and they're like all your friends. Um, you're able to accurately see um, what people in your party are like. And so you understand, okay, some people care about politics. Other people don't. Some people are extreme. Other people are moderate. When you're looking at the other party, oftentimes that's going to be a sort of more mediated view of the party. And that's going to be the loudest people. And the loudest people are extreme. They do hate the other side. They do love their own side. And you're going to counter them not just through your own social media – you know, high school friends or something like that. But also, when you read the news, the news will, was going to focus on those groups for many sensible reasons. But if that's the way you primarily encounter people from the out party, well, that's going to lead to a skewed view of the out party. I do want to dig a little bit more into
0: the piece that the media plays. But just staying on the theme for a second, I think people are pretty familiar, especially who listen to this podcast, with the idea that in the public opinion data, Americans show stark differences in terms of their policy preferences on COVID policy, you know, like we're pretty evenly divided on whether or not there should be vaccine mandates on immigration, on abortion, what have you. Is there a difference? Is that data also skewed towards showing a divide that's not really there? Or on policy, is it? Is that just a different question than how people feel emotionally towards the other side?
1: Well, I think a lot of political science research would suggest that there's a difference between the way you consider the other side based on policy and your positions and policies generally, and your, to return to academic speak, affective response. It's called affective for a reason. It's like your gut feeling is how you feel about the other side. And so specifically, research has actually very deliberately drawn that distinction. That being said, in um, some of our research with our co-authors, we have looked at something like policy positions and positions on COVID, what you find is that there is that association with people who are on the most extreme of kind of negativity toward the other side and greater policy divides. So there's something there as well. People who are most involved, people who are like had the most negative gut feelings to the other side, that is going to somehow translate into them taking more extreme positions on policy.
2: The other sort of thing that I think we would talk about sometimes is when we're looking at COVID, and this is especially data from early on in COVID. So when uh, Republicans are reluctantly putting in place certain policies In areas where there was low spread in March, April of 2020 now, you actually saw great partisan divides in places where there wasn't much COVID and small partisan divides in areas where there was a lot of COVID, right? So a lot of times when you see particular divides on public opinion issues, the reason the divides exist is because this is the way I would like to feel if it doesn't actually matter. So if COVID is not in my area, then I don't want the restrictions. But when COVID comes in my area, then I'm more likely to get the restrictions. We see this in later waves of these surveys. When you look at people who are elderly, people who are immunocompromised, hardcore Republicans are getting the vaccine in those cases, with some exceptions, obviously. And so when it's sort of low stakes, you're going to see greater partisan divide than when there are higher stakes. And so that suggests that there is this sort of real difference that exists. It's not the fact that the 80% who's not paying attention to politics are agreeing on everything. They're they're disagreeing on a lot of things. They're disagreeing especially on what should be prioritized. Oftentimes, the Democrats and Republicans in that 80% will say, I want to prioritize practical things. But what are those practical things? And then how do you solve the solutions to those practical things will be different. The question is, to some extent, are you willing to listen to the other side? How confident are you that your side is correct? How open are you to the possibility that another solution might be possible? And if that solution gets put in place, you will at least temporarily say, well, I suppose it worked. And that the 80% is more open to that. The 80% is more open to that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The 20% is very confident, Once certain things done in certain ways to get particular results. The 80% generally is much, is much less ideological, much more practical driven, but they do have ideological biases that would suggest, I think this is the better route to the practical result. So I think we've gotten into this a little bit, but
0: why is it that the 15 to 20% have come to define what it means to be a Republican or a Democrat in people's minds?
1: Well, so one of the things that we find in the book, and it comes up in a variety of ways, is this idea of expression. So who is it most likely to go to, let's say, social media, to Twitter in particular, that's our data in the book, and talk about politics? It's going to be people from that 15 to 20%. There is a sense of kind of camaraderie and value that they get from expression. But there's also the sense if you're constantly following politics, you're seeing everything laid out in front of you, there's sort of this need to go communicate it to other people, right? If you're If you're following politics, you're gonna see bad things are coming and like, I have to warn everyone else. Um, So you're gonna have this platform. Twitter offers people kind of many affordances to go and communicate it to everyone else. So from social media perspective, you're going to see those people. Okay, but what if you're not really on social media I think there is a pretty fundamental aspect to the role the news plays here, which is that if we think of kind of longstanding research on, on journalists and on journalists' decision-making, there is a focus on conflict. Currently, there's a giant focus on polarization. And these are gonna be the people who really give evidence of those aspects. So if you're looking for basically narratives and a story of polarization, that is who is going to give you the quotes, right? That is who's going to give the more interesting story. That's who's going to produce the narrative. And so eventually the images around us become these images more of conflict. And so you start to think, kind of going back to your earlier question, like everyone around me is doesn't really talk about it. Everyone around me doesn't really focus on politics. Everyone around me is kind of annoyed with both parties. We must be the odd people out, right? We must be of the people who are above it all, um, but everyone else, especially the other party, is what we see on social media, is what we see in the news.
0: So this brings me to a broader question about the role that the 15 to 20% play in actual factual politics, not just perceptions of it. So, you know, of course, I think it's the job of the press to help people understand the world around them. And to the extent that we are distorting that picture, that's no good. But in the sense that The vast majority of Americans weren't involved in the civil rights movement or even the Boston Tea Party or many of the big things that change the direction of our country and end up affecting a lot of people are brought about by a very involved minority. And so is it bad to cover that? I mean, and also, shouldn't everyone be paying attention to those very involved 15 to 20 percent because they might end up deciding the direction of the country, whether you like it or not?
1: Well, so I want to kind of draw a, a distinction for a second here. And I think the distinction is deep involvement and commitment to a particular issue, right? Because the, the examples you gave here and a deep involvement and commitment to politics more generally. And I, and I think there is a difference there. I think it's a kind of fine distinction, but there is, in fact, distinction. Um, if we think about something like political expression, if you're going to Twitter and you're focus is entirely on activism toward a particular issue versus that what unites your tweets is just politics or just conservative politics or just liberal politics, that I think at least research would suggest are two different outcomes. You're more likely to affect change, at least in recent work, by focusing on a commitment to a particular issue, which is not something that we're necessarily attributing to people who are deeply involved people who are deeply involved in politics, their expression is more likely to be united by just politics. They might skip kind of from issue to issue to issue. So those are, to me at least, at least in the book, kind of two different considerations.
0: But wouldn't that like maybe smaller group that's policy focused, just be an even smaller group of the 15 to 20%? Like if the New York Times is talking to partisans, it could be they're talking to people in the Sunrise Movement or they're talking to truckers in Ottawa they're talking often to people who kind of want a specific policy outcome or are mad about something in particular.
2: Yeah, well, Truckers in Ottawa is a good example because if we think about Truckers in Ottawa, I mean, that's a major thing people have done, right? This is not something that can be ignored, right? And I don't think Jan or I would ever say, oh, you shouldn't cover the 15, 20%. As we write in the book, I think in the conclusion, like we set out to talk about everybody and mostly we talk about the 15, 20% and then say, well, that's how they're different. The point would be, as a general rule, I don't think people who are up on public opinion, understand public opinion, would say, oh, those truckers in Ottawa tell us a lot about the typical Canadian, mm-hmm. right? That the typical Canadian has stopped watching the Toronto Maple Leafs and is focused on how are we going to stop Trudeau from putting in vaccine mandates? But you do get a sense sometimes in the way it's talked about in the US media about the United States that the people who stormed the Capitol, well, that makes sense, given that no one can talk at Thanksgiving anymore. And you're like, well, but hold it. That, you know, how many people actually did that? It wasn't millions. And in fact, in our surveys on the Republican side, the number of percentage of people who approve of that insurrection is really low if you ask the question in a particular way. And I mean, the way you ask the question is you first say, hey, what did you think about summer riots? And then you ask them, what do you think about the Capitol? And in that case, I think it was 5% said a supportive of what happened at the Capitol. As opposed to if you start with the Capitol question, then it's 25%. So what those people are actually telling you is, don't blame Republicans. We're not the only ones who do bad things. And so that group exists. That group's important. It's clear politicians listen to that group. That group is more likely to donate money. That group is more likely to drive what politicians believe public opinion is. And so you've got to cover them. It's when you get in that slippage of, and this is what America thinks, right? Mm -hmm. Oh, America's hopelessly divided, all that sort of stuff. When it's like, we can make America hopelessly divided, that could occur. You know, elites can manipulate or can use the 15, 20% to drive public opinion in their areas in particular directions. But that doesn't mean that's the natural state of the world. What's really interesting is if I decide that I'm going to adopt a partisan position that is common among the most active people in my party, in my area, my friendship group, that can be a sign of two things. One, I'm very committed, and therefore I take these positions because it's the position we hold. Or two, I'm not committed at all, and I'm not really figuring it out what we're supposed to do, and so I'm just parroting what I hear. And they look exactly the same, but consequentially they're different for how we talk about the American public versus the involved, loud, active group and and in certain areas that's the group you care about. Now if we're talking about voting, a lot of the people who vote, most of the people who vote aren't in that group. If you're talking about donations and maybe primary voters and certainly people who are going to knock on doors, put yard signs up, all that stuff, that is the involved group. And so that's where you get into this distinction. So to what
0: extent do the 15 to 20% drive actual factual politics? and not just perceptions of it. Do they have an outsized role in terms of driving politicians' policy, what the country focuses on?
2: If you look at the issue priorities, now this we asked these questions pre-COVID, so caveats up and down the board. Um, there are certain things that are common. Healthcare costs, involved people, uninvolved people, often will list that at the top. But I remember when Republicans, the media was popped up as a problem, but no... Republican who's lower involvement says the media, right? So all the sort of focus on deplatforming on Twitter and Facebook and and, and all that sort of stuff, that's not something that would be talked about as, as much. You know, issues of race. So, I mean, this sort of cuts both ways. Issues of race are driven by the involved Democrats, right? That's something that they see as a priority, something that needs to be taken care of. And uninvolved Democrats do not as much. So I would say, like, if you look at the issue priorities, the the 15 to 20% are having an outsized influence, and that has good aspects and bad aspects of that. To be frank, right, the 80% oftentimes don't have the ability because of their jobs, their family lives, et cetera, et cetera, the fact that they have to keep society running outside of politics to figure out what's the proper policy solution. And so that's going to come from Somebody, um, whether the 15 or 20% heard about it or just passed it along, that's where that's coming from. So the 15, 20% are always going to drive things. So now we have a sense of some of the
0: differences. Yana, what determines who is in which camp? What are the traits that unify the 15 to 20% involved and the 80% uninvolved?
1: So the way to think about it, we start kind of with determinants of your childhood, where you're coming from, your socialization. Now, of course, like a million caveats. We can't do this causally. Like we can't randomly assign people to different families and different colleges and different contexts and trace them over, over many, many years like we'd still be writing the book. But in our surveys, we kind of see that the people who are most involved have certain similarities that they recall from their family lives. They talked a lot more about politics with their, with their parents, right? So that's kind of one aspect. They went to different schools. People who are deeply involved went to more selective liberal arts colleges. So that's kind of one thing that pops up repeatedly in our data. They also, in their adult lives, are in different groups of people. So, kind of going back to something that's, I think, been a theme this conversation is the people around you. The people who are deeply involved are in groups, in social groups, in these kind of networks with other really deeply involved people, um, which I think kind of ratchets up this idea that everyone is like this, everyone is like you. So it's not just that they're in groups of people who think like them politically, uh, Democrat versus Republican, though that is also true. But they're also in these groups of people who have kind of similar levels of involvement. So it's a process that we see kind of shaping itself over over time. Um, And it's something that kind of begins when you're childhood.
0: I think there's some sense in your research that it's these highly involved people and the focus on them that is driving the negative feelings that we may have for each other as Americans. It seems like that number, the degree to which people have negative feelings towards out partisans has risen in recent decades. Does that mean that that's a result of the number of highly involved people has risen too and, and helped drive that?
1: So it's interesting. Um, in one of the last talks I traveled to give before the pandemic, one of the questions in the audience was basically like, well, I am X years old and I remember these people being around when I was younger.
0: Sure, yeah, like the 60s, all the protesters, What? you know, like public life was pretty chaotic back then too.
1: Yeah, exactly, right? The question of whether there are more people like this is a challenging one. We, we, we don't have, this is our brand new measure that we created, we don't have it going all the way back. But what I think has really changed is the media environment. And what's really changed is your ability to express your deep involvement. So before uh, social media, if you were deeply involved in politics, and you wanted to talk to other deeply involved people, or you wanted to just like tell everyone something terrible is coming, you would, I don't know, call a friend. You would would write a letter to the editor that nobody ever read, I guess. But now, like I can finish up here and go just fire off a million tweets about politics. And so I think that does two things. So one, it makes it a lot easier to be deeply involved. If we think about cultures of fandom, if you're a huge fan, and this is something we talk about in the book, of something like Star Trek, nobody else is a fan of Star Trek around you. There's no social media. You think you're super weird. You're not really going to talk about it. Um, but now you can just go to social media and find many people like you. And I think the same thing happens here. People tend to talk more. But the other thing that happens is that it introduces the deeply involved to many more people. There's this great book by Jamie Settle called Frenemies. It's about Facebook. And so what she suggests is kind of imagine having um, some friend from camp that you haven't talked about in a decade, or imagine having a friend that you only see very, very occasionally before Facebook, uh, those would be your only interactions. And you would just see them in these sort of small moments. You would have kind of an hour of interaction with them. That's all you'd know about them. Now your friends on Facebook. And now you see basically everything they're posting and you kind of realize, oh, this person's deeply involved in politics. Oh, my goodness. They're posting some kind of strange things about politics. These things are really intense. I guess they represent their party. Now you're kind of privy to all of these political ideas from people you might not have really encountered in a political sense before. And so I think that makes us feel like politics is much more so around us. It's not just limited to the news anymore. It's actually limited to people who are not at all related to the news or not at all related to politics, just kind of talking about it all the time.
0: You, of course, in your book, don't deny that this polarization, negative partisanship is happening in America and to an increasing degree. Is it clear the role that the highly involved people play versus other things in American life. Like, you know, we are becoming more of a multicultural nation. You know, you already mentioned the most recent digital revolution. How do we tease out how much of this is because we focus on these highly involved people who have all of these negative feelings and feel very strongly versus just other things that are happening in American
1: life? So I will say one of my pet peeves is when people basically say, I'm studying this thing, and this thing explains everything. yeah, because that's that's never going to be true. And so I would never say this here, right? because in part because it's not true. Right? There's so many things happening at once that I don't think there's one of those things where you turn off this faucet and everything basically disappears, essentially. I think our greater accessibility to people who are deeply involved, is one aspect of many things that are currently changing in in our society. Kind of the goal of the book is, I think, in some sense to remind people who are, because honestly, if you're reading this book, you're deeply involved in politics. Something that I think we often forget in these involvement bubbles, which is that there are a lot of people out there who are just functioning in a really different context. So a lot of these things that might seem really clear and important to you is not actually something that people are picking up on. So even these dynamics that you just mentioned, changing and creating changes in American context, they might be kind of directionally clear to somebody who's really involved in politics, um, but it's not. it might not even be on the radar of most of the people.
0: I wanna blue sky for a moment and talk about how the country politics, our relationships with one another might be different if we did focus more on the 80%. So whether it's how media would be different, how actual agendas in Washington, D.C. might be different, if you do truly think we would feel differently about each other, if we take this book to heart and reconsider what we think about America, what do we have to gain from that, in your view?
2: I think one thing that would be very different is from a media standpoint i don't want to be clear the book is not a blame the media book other uh, there's certain hey, bits you know, of it where you're like the you know, there's certain bits of it where but it's but it's the sort of story that wouldn't exist would be the story that is someone said something on twitter and this is now setting an agenda for some reason unless that person on twitter happened to be i don't know the president of the united states or even some famous basketball player right but sort of some random person the other thing that i think would be sort of different in the way things are covered or at least the way things have changed is you'll get stories, and I don't know how this would how this would change, right? Because you get stories that are, hey, I want to investigate X, right? And especially you think about this in terms of local news, right? I want it. There's this thing going on. I want to see if it's happening here. And the old way you'd have to do it is get a camera, get a microphone, go out on the main street and start, you know, doing quote man on the street interviews. Well, now. You can go on social media, search for some terms and find somebody who has the opinion that you're looking for or has a take on the issue that you're talking about. And so I sort of wonder if in the previous world, how many stories, assuming, right, and this is a terrible assumption that I've just made, assuming that we have the same number of outlets that we have now and the same number of people trying to generate content, um, would they have to kill some stories because they couldn't get the information? Uh, and now they can do it. They can keep the story alive because somebody probably has said the thing that you're looking for at some point um, on social media. Mm-hmm. And so that would be that would be a change, sort of like what we're consuming. In some ways, though, it wouldn't change necessarily the things that we're talking about in in politics because you can't have coverage of politics that isn't about conflict, really, right? Because even in the sort of at least certainly if you had an era of good feelings, um, you know, if you think about the '90s now. Pete Wilson is running in California for re-election on a three-strike law – well, one-strike law for some candidates, and the Democrat, Kathleen Brown, runs that Pete Wilson is letting people out. She runs a Willie Horton ad on him, right? So there's some agreement there on, on crime at least, some other issues. But there's still conflict. You're still writing about conflict. No one's going to think about the 90s and politics and be like, well, that was peaceful. And so in some ways it doesn't change because whether it's 15 20% or if it's 5 10% or if it's just the politicians – that is the narrative of narrative of politics is conflict and so i don't know that that would change that much
1: yeah i mean the message of the book isn't hopeful in the sense Darn. of the, <laughs> that there's is, there's is this badness out there but we're providing you hope right i think it's it's really sort of that these people have for a variety of reasons gotten an outsized amount of attention but as we kind of came to this idea. It's hard to imagine how could this possibly be otherwise, right? We would have loved to sort of say, and if journalists stopped doing this, everything would be great. But that's that's not true. It's hard to stop doing this. They are an important group of people. I do think the best we can hope for is some contextualization that when you have a headline that says like Democrats and Republicans genuinely hate each other, that you have some sort of footnote that says, but not like 60%.
2: I will say one thing that's sort of a better answer to this in terms of what we could imagine is that we recently, and it's just one survey, it's done with YouGov, so it's a pretty good sample, ran the exact same measures in the United Kingdom. And you get fewer people who are high on the deep involvement measure. But you wouldn't look at the United Kingdom and say like, oh, there's no conflict there. I mean, Brexit, right? And you do see people saying, oh, I don't want somebody who voted the other way on on the referendum. So even if we had fewer people who are involved, there would still be divisions. The question we might have is, are those divisions based largely on party? Or maybe they're based on sort of region or culture or urban, rural, all these sort of divides that already exist in the US. Do some of those get highlighted a bit more? And one of those could be racial. And I think we'd agree that that would be worse <laughs> if that was the clear dividing line was race or religion. That wouldn't be better, a better world. It's just that's the conflict of that world. Yeah,
0: and of course, so, some of this also get smushed into the partisan divide yeah. as well. I mean, I think at the very least, it's nice in a person's individual life to be able to go out in the world and say, hey, like, the vast majority of people are just chill with each other. So I mean, even if you're not changing the political course of the country here, maybe for people who have a skewed perception of the larger public, it's somewhat settling to know that most people are just chilled out, don't really want to hear your opinions and just want to like live their life. All right. Well, I have to say thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today. The book was really, really interesting and we'll keep it in mind in the conversations that we have on this podcast. And I'm sure listeners will be thinking about it as they read the news going forward. But thank you so much.
1: Thank you for having us.
0: Thank you so much. Yana Kripnikov and John Barry Ryan are the authors of the new book, The Other Divide Polarization and Disengagement in American Politics. My name is Galen Druk. Tony Chow is in the virtual control room. Claire Bittigary Curtis is on audio editing. And Emily Vanesky is our intern. You can get in touch by emailing us at podcasts at 538.com. You can also, of course, tweet at us with any questions or comments. If you're a fan of the show, leave us a rating or review in the Apple Podcast Store or tell someone about us. Thanks for listening, and we will see you soon.